Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We are fully functioning now in our partnership with Metal Arc Media, and we're going to have three segments to the podcast. In the first segment, Chris Whittingham and I will talk about world soccer headlines, including Americans Abroad. The second segment will be an interview, and we've got a great one this episode with Nick Muhammad, who plays Nate on Ted Lasso. And in the third segment, we'll talk about domestic soccer headlines. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? All advice to the audience. We talked to Nate from Ted Lasso already, and it's unnerving how much I liked him because (laughs) I was prepared to tell him to go bleep himself for what he did to Ted. I was prepared to not like him, and he's one of the nicest men that I've ever met in my life. And so I I think if you are a Ted Lasso fan, you are going to love this interview with Nick Muhammad because he kind of takes you behind how the plot twist goes throughout the year. Spoilers, by the way, if you've not finished Ted Lasso Season 2, maybe this interview isn't for you. But either way, tremendous stuff. And I find Nate to be an incredibly nice man, which I wasn't hoping he would be. <laughs> he just called him Nate. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be Nate for me. <laughs> it's, I am very impressed with with his acting, especially for a guy who, as he says in the interview, didn't have any formal uh, acting training uh he's a comedian he's a magician you'll learn all about this stuff but yeah really enjoyable interview so everyone stick around for that but we do want to talk some soccer and it was a busy weekend club soccer starting again after the fifa window let's start in england leicester city in a truly wild game beats manchester united 4-2 some terrific goals in this game and suddenly it seems like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer might be on the hot seat, my friend. Yeah, Ole out has begun again. Ole's at the wheel is being joked about by all the rival fan bases. And it ultimately comes down to the difference in expectations. I think this season is materially different for him than the previous two have been. And I think the fact that he now has Cristiano Ronaldo, they signed Rafael Varane, they signed Jadon Sancho, they look to be, you know, early season, you know, when, when they beat Newcastle, I think out of the September international break, it was like, all right, here we go, Manchester United are going to mount a title challenge, and now it's a poor result in the Champions League. It's a couple of poor results in the Premier League, and now it's, can Ole Gunnar Solskjaer get to the level of taking Manchester United towards the title? And I think it becomes ever increasingly clearer he just is not at the level. You think of what Thomas Tuchel came in and did for Chelsea last season. Pep, Klopp, all these incredible smart minds that are at the top of the Premier League now. And it just doesn't seem like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is at that level. You know, I always sort of play the game if Ole was on the open market, how many big clubs would hire him? And I know he has this personal history with Manchester United, knows the culture of the club, and there's value in that. But... If he were on the open market right now, I don't think any big club would hire him. And you can't say that about Klopp or Guardiola or the managers he's trying to beat. And so I just don't think long term this is going to you know, work out. Apparently, as of right now, you got Fabrizio Romano saying that he's safe for now. But this was a wild game as well. Just this specific game. Some terrific goals. My favorite was Yuri Thielman's, oh. uh, which was just a ridiculous one-time strike, teardrop. Are you buying that he meant it? I am. I yeah. am. You know, I mean, like, I shouted at the television several times yeah. in, in this game, and that was certainly one of them. Got crazy late. United 
equalized and then almost instantly Lester scored and ends up, you know, putting him away 4-2. What was your favorite goal in this game? I would actually, so it is Tielemans, right? But if, if you're looking for a secondary candidate, the goal from Mason Greenwood was one of those where you just <laughs> let out a, Wah! like just like one of those noises at the television. You just can't help but kind of have this guttural yell. So that one was great. Jamie Vardy's, I think, is kind of underrated. It's kind of a slicing with his right foot across it. So it goes away from De Gea. De Gea, who, by the way, made a couple of brilliant saves in this game yeah. despite conceding four goals. Goals. He tipped one onto the post. I want to say from Tielemans. That was brilliant. That yeah. I mean, the, the whole occasion was sensational. I actually think that as long as we're talking about high-level managers, Brendan Rodgers and the way that his team attacks. I know this season has not gone great for them in terms of results, but if you look at even some of the moments where it doesn't work for Leicester in terms of scoring a goal. There was one moment where it was like a 3v3, Iannaccio is running forward, and there's a whole pattern of play around, frankly, a bad decision for Iannaccio to cut inside, but they make amends for it. It goes out to Madison, he flicks it on for Tielemann, and you look at this, it's an orchestrated attack. You can see the ideas behind what they're trying to do, and I just think that's what Manchester United like. I don't think that Manchester United are as well coached and as well drilled in how they're going to score goals. It's just, hey, we got incredibly talented players, roll the ball out there and try score. Do we want to open the can of worms that is Cristiano Ronaldo and whether he is actually a positive for Manchester United in terms of what he brings to the field for them? I think it's harsh, but I I do also at the same time, when you give away four goals, one of the things that you sacrifice to bring Ronaldo in is defensive structure, right? Because if you had you know, a forward who would put in a shift, then maybe it's not getting into the midfield faster and it's not getting into the forward line faster. Defending is a domino effect, particularly in the modern game. So when he doesn't score a goal, he doesn't add a lot. And that's been the case for the last couple of years. And Juventus is now trying to rebuild their structure without him because they tailored their attacks so much to having Ronaldo. Now in the post-Ronaldo era, it's taken them some time to bounce back. They beat Roma today in Serie A, but... At the same time, I just think that once you have him in your team, and Sir Alex, you know, in a private moment said that he thought that he should start every game, Ronaldo, once you build it around him, there's going to be some leaky and faulty parts. You just hope that he makes up for it by scoring goals. But in the last couple of games in which he hasn't scored, Manchester United have lost. Yeah, I think it's an issue. Let's move on. Chelsea somehow wins 1-0 at Brentford. Very interesting game, I thought, because Brentford dominated in the second half, and I think the XG was about 1.9 for Brentford, 0.2 for Chelsea, and yet Chelsea gets the Ben Chilwell goal early in the second half and and gets three points at a place where Liverpool did not not too long ago. They had a 3-3 tie at Brentford. You can talk about different things here, right? Chelsea getting three points despite being outplayed and and, and just a, a tremendous game by Edward Mendy in goal. Six saves, I think, but some acrobatic saves on multiple occasions. I don't know. Do you come out of this feeling good for Chelsea or the opposite? Well, away at Brentford, I think, is going to become one of these newly promoted fixtures that is going to be really tough. I remember the first year that Sheffield United came into the league. That was a tough place to go. I mean, away at Huddersfield Town was a tough fixture in their first season in the league. There's always one newly promoted team where, because it's such a thrill for them to be in it, it's difficult to go and get points there. So I think to get three points from Brentford away, I think is probably going to be an impressive feat this season, given how great their crowds are. It was great again at the Brentford Community Stadium on Saturday. But at the same time, 
I think that Chelsea, if you look at their underlying numbers, you mentioned the XG, I think that there's some signs that maybe the tweak has to come at some point from Thomas Tuchel. And the biggest tweak is that I think he's got to go from a five at the back to a, to a four at the back because they're just an attacker short right now. If you look at the chances that they create, they don't create enough. And the goals have kind of come from set pieces and come from defenders and come from you know all these different sources. It's not a steady, reliable attack. And so I think that Tuchel, that's his job for this season. It's figuring out in the league, how do I get my team to score chances while remaining defensively solid? Has obviously prioritized being defensively solid over the course of his tenure. I think it's time for that to flip a little bit. And it's time for Chelsea to kind of get out of second gear and start going forward and start trying to create lots of chances even away from home until places like Brentford. I do want to talk about one other game, and that was the game at Newcastle. Spurs winning there, but so many stories in addition to the soccer, and this is a very bad Newcastle team, by the way, Mm. uh, and now they have a new owner. It's basically the Saudis. So there's a lot to talk about that has very little to do with, with soccer here, but how do you approach watching this? I mean, like this game felt very strange to me. Uh, It was really weird seeing people dressed up in so-called Saudi clothing, Mm -hmm. you know, like gear uh, in in the crowd. And and then looming over all of this is these are the people who murdered Jamal Khashoggi. And I am very deeply uncomfortable with them being involved in the Premier League. And there was actually a van outside of St. James's Park today with a picture of Jamal Khashoggi on it. And Rob Harris did a really interesting piece from from the ground for the AP wrote about how, you know, there are Saudi nationals who are living in London and and, and came up for the game. There's all that's fake news, and I don't believe that. And so, you know, I think today was kind of the biggest example of sports washing that we've ever seen. We're like, these are meant to be what they call soft power. And it's, well... Whoever a regime is, whether it's you know Manchester City's ownership group, creates such a positive feeling within Manchester that it's no longer about what they do in their countries. It's about what they're doing for this team. It's their front-facing, public-facing operation. It, it comes under a lot of scrutiny, but it also has some positivity. I think the idea that, that Newcastle fans went so far from my team is now changed forever. It's no longer owned by Mike Ashley, who was not interested in winning and it's owned by a group who are interested in winning, it's now, we're going to take on the identity of Saudi nationals because we love this so much. That's several steps beyond, and I think kind of makes it so that what the Saudis were intending to do is working. And that's the part that's gross, right? Because right. You, you can be allowed to own a Premier League team, and you know, like I, I understand why these countries embark on these projects, but at the same time, I, I've, I've, it's just never been that blatant before. And it, it just kind of right. left me with a, with a sour feeling. Look, I, I'm a Manchester City fan, so I would prefer that my ownership not have a bad human rights record. But they're not flaunting it in quite the same way that the, 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 the Newcastle ways are flaunting it today. Maybe that's just a sad kind of defense. But it, it, was, it was rough to watch. It was rough to see a group of fans so getting behind a regime and denying the regime, like there was, you know, one fan that was quoted in the AP piece that was basically saying, "Do we know that to be a fact?" Like, kind of sowing doubt over such a horrific human rights thing that happened, and so it did kind of give me a bad feeling. Yeah, and it's going to be an ongoing story. All this money is now coming to Newcastle United, so you would think they're going to hire a new coach, maybe sooner rather than later. They're going to make a big splash in the January transfer window. They're going to need to stay up 
uh, and this is not a good team right now that, you know, if, if things continue as they, you know, as they look right now, they would, they would go down. So, you know, you've got all of that from the sporting perspective. I can't get away from the fact that these are the people who murdered Jamal Khashoggi. And I, you know, that's kind of it for me. Um, Americans abroad, do you want to talk about some of the U.S. players who, including some who played midweek in Columbus, Ohio on Wednesday night? Chris Richards played on Friday after playing on Friday night. Uh, he played with Hoffenheim, uh, came on as a sub in that game. and A first half uh, sub. He had to play like 52 minutes or something like that? Yeah. Which, considering he flew across the world <laughs> like 24 hours earlier, it's kind of crazy to me. Yeah, and Zach Steffen very interestingly gets the start for Manchester City in their win, makes a really nice save at one point. And it makes sense, right, that he would start because of Anderson being with the Brazilian national team. They had a game on Thursday night. But it does make me wonder, Zach Steffen did start for the U.S. first time in qualifying on Wednesday night in Columbus. Do we wonder maybe if if Pep Guardiola made the request to Greg Berhalter that Zach Steffen get a game? It's a reasonable question, I think, because you know we've, we've heard about some of the ways in which the clubs are interacting with the national team. And you wonder if maybe that that call gets made, he's going back home. I mean, you'd like to think that those decisions are made entirely independently, and maybe Greg Berhalter was always going to start him in a Columbus game, and it made sense to kind of try and bring him into the fold. And I still think that, kind of like how Greg Berhalter has this ideal vision of a holding midfield player who's an incredible passer of a ball more than anything else. I think he also wants to have a goalkeeper that is good with his feet. I think that's an ideal skill set. So I think that he's going to try and tip the scales towards Stefan. But it is kind of an interesting coincidence that Stefan hasn't played for the U.S., hasn't played for Manchester City much either, and then gets two starts in four days because he kind of is needed by both. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought he was good on the day. And mm-hmm. when you watch Maxwell Cornet bar- barreling on goal for Burnley, you're like, all right, this is, this is a big moment for Zach Steffen. He produced a huge save to keep a clean sheet, which is uh, which is a really important time in the game because City occasionally does get sucker punched by these lesser teams away at, at home where you know they get hit on a counterattack and the keeper has to make a big save. And Ederson doesn't always come up big in those moments. So uh, Steffen does. And now uh, maybe he can get an, an odd start here or there before the next international window for City. And that would lead to the possibility of him starting for the U.S. next month. It's a really open question now, I think, who the number one U.S. keeper is. You know, Matt Turner has started five of the six qualifiers and has played pretty well for the most part. But Stefan's starting games for Manchester City from time to time. So that's something you can't really argue with. And I guess in a, in a sense, it's a luxury for Greg Berhalter to have two goalkeepers you can trust like that in, in qualifying situations. Uh, one player who was not with the U.S. this window was Josh Sargent. And he missed... It's, it's weird, like, to call it a sitter because he was so far out from goal. But... <laughs> It kind of it was like the longest distance sitter ever, and he failed. Like he looked like me on the golf course, like you know, like having a, a, a twenty foot putt and, and hitting it like twelve feet. But like pretty poor, unfortunately, for Josh Sargent in a, a game that ended up being a tie to miss 
a shot to not convert when you are that open. And also, I mean, for Norwich, a team that's desperate to score goals, for Sargent, you would imagine to give him confidence to open his account. There's so many things that could happen there if he gets a goal. And Daniel Farka, the Norwich manager, comes out after the game and says, I really liked how Josh Sargent played in the overall. I like how he combined with Timu Puki. And I think the fact that he's playing is a good thing, and, and that he's starting and playing. But Norwich, in their position in the table, is so diabolical that if he contributed towards his own confidence and his own team climbing up the table, he only puts himself in a better position because you do not want to see Josh Sargent get relegated in back-to-back seasons. You don't want to see him in single-digit goals in back-to-back seasons as he was for Werder last year because you want to, he, he's a prospect that was meant to kick on. He was meant to kind of grow in his career. And it felt like when it happened, a lateral move, I thought Norwich are going to be better than they have been this season. They've been terrible. And so if Sargent could have helped drag Norwich out of it, that would have been a big deal and probably put him back in the frame for the next window for, uh, for World Cup qualifying. Let's go now to our interview with Nick Muhammad. Our guest now plays one of the most fascinating characters on Ted Lasso. Nick Muhammad plays Nate Shelley, ambitious soccer coach. He got an Emmy Award nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. We're going to have spoilers here, folks. So if you don't want to hear them, you should go away now and come back after you finish the Ted Lasso season that just ended on Apple TV+. Nick, congratulations on everything you're doing. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about here, my friend. Terrific season. I just wanted to start by asking how much hate mail and social media negativity have you been receiving for Nate's heel turn this season? <laughs> um, you know, a fair amount, a fair amount. Um, no, listen, I think um, obviously people are hating Nate right now. But I've said it all the time, like that that is correct, you know. It'd be weird if people were like, hey, Nate's behaving great this season. This is you know, this is all behavior that we completely condone. He's making a series of bad decisions. And you know, it, it feels worse because I think with season one, with that kind of Nate story in that season, it was kind of the underdog does good and everyone could associate with that. And I think, you know, everyone kind of warmed to Nate in that kind of way. But little did they know what was brewing underneath. So I think there's been further to fall. And I think people have taken that, you know, quite <laughs> personally. And uh, But in a good way, you know, people have had a strong reaction to the show. And that's, you know, that's all we ever kind of try and strive for, I guess. And uh, no, and, and, you know, social media is crazy anyway. And I, I only kind of dip in and out occasionally anyway. But uh, it's... um. People have been able to distinguish between me and me and the character. But of course, yeah, people are hating on Nate. But then they've been kind to say, but we know he's just an actor. Da, 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 da. So, you know. What's the wildest thing you've seen in terms of the reaction so far? Uh, people, someone, <laughs> someone sent me like pictures of like different pictures of cats that kind of chart like Nate's downfall. <laughs> the weird As you do. As you did, yeah. yeah. And that, like one of them did genuinely look, look like me. So I was like, oh, yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. yeah, lots of, I mean, the thing is, the, 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 the most affecting thing has been when people have really have said, oh, I'm finding this quite triggering, you know, the bullied, the bullied becoming the bully and things like, you know, the, the stuff that it kind of touches on and the kind of toxic relationship with his dad and, you know, the assault he, you know, on, on Keeley, you know, and, you know, these are really serious topics and, you know, 
you know, Ted Lasso just walks this incredible fine line that it manages to deliver such a, an important message, you know, a lot of drama and emotion as well as, it, you know, it being a comedy, right? So it's kind of, you know, it's important that we kind of take all that seriously. But, you know, yeah, it has affected people and, 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 and you know, it does have a far reach, that show. So I kind of didn't want to as well start scrolling through Twitter too much because Polly as well, because that's exactly what Nate does in the show. He starts scrolling <laughs> And I just thought it'd be really weird if I started kind of getting like, oh, like look at look, look at these tweets, and then start, you know. So I just sort of, I, I kind of, you know, I dip in and out. Bit too much of method acting there. If you started reading yeah. your own, uh, reading your own replies, uh, when did you find out that this was going to be the season of the Nate heel turn? Or uh, as you said, like the breadcrumbs were there in season one. Did you kind of know that it was going in this direction in season two? Yeah, yeah. Early on, uh, I remember Jason. Um, we're filming the gala episode in season one, which is like episode three or four. And um, Jason and I were sat next to each other for a lot of that. And he just, he just sort of described just broadly speaking, the kind of three season arc for Nate. And, um, and he, and this was before I think it had even been re- renewed actually. So, you know, they, they've, they've had it all in their heads for ages. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know all the details, but I knew, you know, roughly speaking where things were going. And like you say, yeah, there's a few little things that are planted in season one, which kind of, definitely makes sense in in hindsight. You wrote a really interesting post on Twitter pointing out some major moments in Nate's character development, including his graying hair as the season progressed. And you wrote, in my head, Nate was transforming into Jose Mourinho. Yeah. And it made me think, what all was going on there with that transformation? Well, I think... um only in the sense that, you know, I, I think I said to you guys before, like, I don't know really much about any sport, let alone football. But we had talked a little bit about, you know, coaching techniques and management techniques. And, you know, when stuff goes to a coach's head and they start to see themselves. And I'm not, I'm not saying about Jose Mino necessarily, not, like saying it's completely based on him. It's obviously not. But just in my head, there are just elements of kind of you know, a, a coach almost becoming, you know, more famous than some of the players, you know, that's kind of a really interesting thing when they're kind of coaching the team and, you know, what they will do to kind of bring out the best in the team, you know, the kind of ruthless ambition for a particular club over, you know, hurting individual players' feelings, set. you know, just sort of seeing the kind of great, great goal, you know, it's quite, I think you maybe have to be a, a degree of like a, in a bit of a sociopath maybe to sort of kind of sometimes do that. I don't want, I'm not, I'm not pinpointing it on Jose or anyone. I'm just sort of saying that there's sort of some of that was sort of, I just remember sort of reading about a lot of that stuff and just sort of thinking about it a lot when, when going into season two. Now you, you said it to us in the, in the pre-interview, but I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that you're not actually a football fan or a sports fan of any kind. First off, why not? And second, <laughs> how, how, how much does that require you to then study the, oh. the behavior of managers that be like, it, like almost yeah. it is more acting in a way, because yeah. I imagine there are people on the show who are football fans who, it's yeah. not that much of a stretch for them because they kind of understand the behavior a bit more. I would say me and Jeremy, who plays Higgins, we know so little about, about football. I mean, I have to ask so many questions because I don't know. Sometimes when I'm talking about strategy, I don't know what, like, what the words mean. Like, I just don't know what it, I don't know whether they're verbs or nouns or like, I just don't know anything. I don't know the names of the teams. I don't know what the premiership is. I know. I kind of listen. I've learned. I've learned a lot more since doing this job. And it's not that I don't like it. I mean, my my dad's a huge football fan, and I was, you know, I went to loads of football games when I was growing up, and you know, I just, I just couldn't kind of get into it. I was always, I was a bit, I was just a bit too geeky for it. You know, I was, I wasn't like the sports sporty kid at school. I did like magic when I was growing up, and you know, I still do magic now. But like, it's, 
you know, I just, I just didn't fit in. I much preferred, you know, playing chess or kind of, uh, you know. So I just, I, it just never was a thing for me. And you know, I enjoyed, like, I enjoyed tennis. I enjoyed playing tennis. I mean, not that I've played tennis for years, to be fair, since having kids. But like, you know, I kind of, and I jog a lot. But I don't, I don't. I'm just sort of not into football. I watched the the Euros because you know England got to the final, and that felt quite good. And I enjoy like watching athletics. I guess I like the kind of the camaraderie, you know, I like, I like that. And actually my appreciation for just sort of team sports in general has definitely gone up kind of watching the show. And those, those guys who, who play the footballers in, in, in the show, I mean, A, they're all like, you know, like semi-pro footballers really anyway. I mean, they're incredible, but also just, they, they love it and they breathe and it's, and they talk about it all the time. And you can, and that is infectious. Like you can't help but be kind of thinking, oh, I, I, I kind of wish I was a part of this, but you know, I, I still feel a little bit outside of that, but it was quite useful. It was, I remember, when we were filming season one, because Nate is such an outsider, particularly in that season, thinking, oh, well, I should use this. I should, I should, I should not join in with these conversations. And I should feel awkward about not being able to join in with these conversations because that's how Nate feels. But, you know, we've got to film in some really cool places. You know, we've filmed in like Crystal Palace and Wembley. And, you know, it's like, oh, oh this is Wembley. That's pretty cool. So I could, you know, I could, I could appreciate some of that. And weirdly, the only time I'd been to Wembley before was to see a magic show. Like, genuinely, <laughs> not been to, to see any sport there. The Ehrlich brothers who are these two german illusionists had done this massive tour of arenas and um yeah they did wembley when they came to england a couple of years ago so that's that's the only time i've previously been (laughs) that's great you note in your twitter post that nate and ted don't have a scene with just the two of them together in season two until the season's final episode and it's this incredible scene and i'm wondering how did you approach your side of the acting in that scene you know it felt a little bit like pacino and de niro finally getting their scene together <laughs> well that's very kind i mean i think um i think i listen it's all hats off to the writers um uh, jason and joe kelly one of the co-creators wrote that final episode and and you know i knew it had been brewing for so long you know and, and you know we were very aware you know i was made aware like it's really important that there's not a scene between ted and and nate prior to this because you know you want the audience to almost feel that sense of like they just need to have it out some someone needs to say something you know something needs to happen and so it did make it you know a bit of a kind of pressure cooker scene in a way because it just felt like okay finally we get to we get to have it out and jason is so good so i mean listen i was so supported in that scene and you know i've not really had to kind of act like that previously because a lot of what I do is just silly comedy stuff really so you know I knew that it was going to be a bit challenging and um quite tricky but you know they just you know the director um Declan Lowney and you know I think Joe Kelly was on set I think Brett might have been on set for a bit of that um but we kept it really quiet and quite small because it was going to be quite intense and you know and for Jason as well Jason was really sweet and we shot my side first so that we could kind of kind of get that out of the way um but it was yeah Jason just kind of really got in my head like in a good way just sort of talking kind of in my ear like as if he was sort of Nate's sort of inner demon so that I was really pumped kind of walking into the office where I then where then he would sort of follow me in afterwards so that I could really kind of lay into him so he's just really good at making it relatable and personal but yeah it was it was difficult it felt real though it felt really real and that was what we needed it to feel so i'm glad how how it turned out do you feel like you've unlocked 
this new dimension in your ability as an actor in this show? Because like, I, I, that's a that's a real, real scene. Uh, yeah, not in a self-aggrandizing way. I think that like, um, I, I was pleased with how it how it ended. Out. You know, it's the kind of thing where you're like nervous and you kind of, you, there was a lot of build up to it. And then we did it and I was like, oh, it's good to, we've done that. And, and you know, I've only watched it like once. I'm not going to like dwell on it, but like, um, but I guess, I guess like, because I didn't have, I've not been to like drama school and stuff. So I kind of lacked quite a lot of technique. So I kind of, and I did need a lot of kind of like, you know, I needed Jason there to kind of, okay, you got to talk me, like walk me through this. Cause I just need to know, you know, I'm not going to be able to do it otherwise. So I guess now having done it once, it's sort of, there's something to kind of relate doing kind of, I guess, proper acting too. <laughs> and I didn't really have that prior to then. So yeah, I guess it's kind of, it's made me quite excited. Like I've, you know, never done drama before really. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was satisfying ultimately. Yeah. What was the process of Jason Sudeikis priming you up for this scene? Trying to channel in that he, inner demon. He would, I think he was basically pretending to be Nate's dad effectively. Wow. You know, he was sort of saying, you know, uh, you'll never get a girlfriend. You're, no, you know, you're, you're useless. You're a loser. I'm never going to be proud of you. You know, he was sort of doing the thing that's, you know, that monologue is really uh, the thing to Ted is really, he's having to go to his dad, right? But he's just, he's lashing out in the wrong directions because he's gone, well, he's not mad, but he's, you know, he's gone on such a downward spiral. He's just lashing out to all the wrong people. And, you know, Ted was effectively his, his dad in season one uh, and, you know, and it's true, Ted has abandoned him. It's not Ted's fault. Ted's got his own stuff going on, but Nate doesn't see it that way. He just feels like he's just bereft and without, you know, a network, a support network, no friends, no partner, relationship, girlfriend, boyfriend. You know, he just, he doesn't, he's like, what am I doing? You know, he's just, and so now he's just really lashing out. He's sort of gone into some weird defensive mode. And yeah, he's just laying into Ted, sort of saying all the things that he probably should have really said to his dad a long time ago. Now that Nate has the top job at West Ham United, what kind of a manager do you think he's going to be? Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, they're writing it at the moment. Um, I keep on getting the odd little tantalizing text from <laughs> Brett. <laughs> keeps on like, I know, I've known Brett for ages. I knew him before Ted Lasso. And um, so, yeah. And uh, it's interesting. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a true answer. I mean, you know, I think we're all hoping there might be some kind of redemption arc for Nate. I genuinely don't know. He might be the one character that they don't redeem because everyone expects it as well. You know, everyone, everyone expects a redemption arc in Ted Lasso because it's, that's the show, you know, Jamie's had one, Rebecca had one. Um, and you know, will Nate get one? I, I don't know. He might have overstepped the mark. I mean, having Rupert as a boss can't be a good thing, right? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't call him an inspiring leader. Uh, he's great is Anthony Head who plays that part. I mean, he's just so incredible at doing that you know, smarmy, horrible, patronizing, sort of sinister sort of quality to that part. Um, he's brilliant. Um, so I don't know. I think he's either in my head, and I, again, I don't know, he's either going to flourish because, you know, this is this is the, the rise of, you know, what he's always kind of maybe been destined to do. And then I would say there's probably no redemption or he's going to he's going to realize, you know, that Rupert is the worst person in the world and he's going to get, you know, he's going to get shit on. So he's, and he's going to realize, ah, what have I done? And he's going to come crawling back to AFE Richmond. But I genuinely don't know. So we'll have to see. Nick, you mentioned your lack of background in drama or not going to drama school. So I guess I would just ask, 
how did you come upon this role and, and how did you kind of end up in this show when in th- th- or in this industry when that isn't necessarily your background? Um, so I was doing a, uh, well, I mean, like the, the long, long story is, so I was, do- I was at Cambridge doing a PhD in geophysics, which is, you know, very quite specific. I wouldn't recommend wow. people doing that to get into acting. <laughs> but I, but I, joined, I joined the Cambridge Footlights, which you might have heard of, which is like the kind of sketch group uh, part of Cambridge and, you know, a lot of like Monty Python and Mitchell and Webb, you know, it's kind of uh, Fry and Laurie and, you know, a lot of, a lot of kind of, it's got a really kind of good sort of alumni base. And, you know, it makes you kind of, not ambitious, but it kind of makes you think, oh, well, you know, if you want to try and follow comedy as a career, not that there's any guarantees, but, you know, this is a good sort of starting point. And it was in that it kind of, it made me, you know, I, I really got into just writing comedy and every two weeks you could, the, you know, put on these sketch shows and you could do your bit. So I kind of got into doing live comedy and then went to the Edinburgh Festival and, and you know, still still do like a lot of live stuff. And and then like, you know, fast forward 10, 10 years, you know, because I, I, I guess I couldn't really have, when I then first moved to London, I couldn't afford to just do comedy for a living because I was sort of doing open mic spots and it wasn't, you know, wasn't well paid or anything. And so I was working at Morgan Stanley, the investment bank for a bit, and then eventually turned professional about, yeah, just over 10 years ago, just doing acting. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, it's been quite a slow burn. I've always been really happy. I, I sort of balanced it with writing um, stuff, stuff for myself and sitcoms and radio shows and things. But then, um, yeah, I mean, I remember this casting coming about when I was filming Intelligence, which was kind of like the first series that I'd written just on my own, uh, which is me and David Schwimmer. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of, not that I was skeptical about the show at all, but I remember it coming at a time when I was really busy with Intelligence and I was an exec producer on that show as well. So I kind of needed to be all over it. And I was like, ah, is this going to take me away from that? And I don't know. I think oh, we knew that we were going to do another series of intelligence already as well. So I was like, I'm going to have to write that. So I was kind of, I was kind of like, ah, should I? And then I read it obviously. And it was great. And I knew that Jason's so great and Brendan and Bill Lawrence and, um, I knew about Brett's involvement as well. And, um, and they had then outlined the kind of the season arc a little bit in a bit more detail and where it might be going. And I was like, oh, this actually sounds really, really tantalizing. So eventually I was like, you know what, I've got to do this. And yeah, I'm obviously so grateful that I did do it because never looked back. And I remember like 10 days later, I was like in the, in the read through um, with all those guys and sat next to Jason who had like a deck of cards. So uh, Jason's a massive magic fan as well. So he like, he and a really good magician. So he was like always kind of doing, card stuff and things so yeah it was is lovely yeah so you were nominated for the same emmy award with your ted lasso co-stars brett goldstein brandon hunt and jeremy swift brett ends up winning it what was that like for all of you to be up for the same emmy award i think we were just so i mean listen we all knew brett was getting it i mean we we, we had there was no doubt in our mind that brett was getting it. i i i thought either brendan because I'll be, I mean, every, you know, everyone's good. Jeremy's good. Brendan's good. Uh, Brett's good. But like Brendan, partly because he's co-creator of that show. And, you know, he's so fun in that in that role as Coach Beard. So I thought it was between him and him and Brett. And, you know, Jeremy and I, I mean, we were like, you know, texting each other. We we're like, I mean, we're just lucky. To, we're just here for the free food. I mean, we're <laughs> not, and for the, for the flight over to the States. Like we were like, we couldn't believe it. So we were just delighted to, to be there. There was no pressure on us to kind of, prepare a speech or anything we were just like I mean Brett 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 or Brendan have got this and probably Brett so it was wonderful and you know I think I felt the same like I think we kind of knew that Hannah was likely to win and Jason was likely to win not in a kind of like overconfident way but we were just because the previous award stuff had kind of happened prior to that we were like well you know it, it it looks like you know 
it's quite favorable odds for them. And so, yeah, it was my first time in America. I think I flew in on the Saturday night, the Emmys was the Sunday night, and then I flew back on the Monday night. <laughs> so it was, I was sort of jet lagged through the whole thing, but it was incredible and, and bonkers. Yeah, it was, it was mad. So on, on the set, you mentioned uh, a brief window into Jason as, as both uh, someone who does magic and someone who can uh, become your father and tell you you're worth nothing. Uh, is there anything where Ted Lasso, where like Jason is Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso is Jason? Uh, do you have any stories on set from him kind of almost absorbing that character even when you're not filming? Always, yeah. All, I mean, pretty much always. I mean, I remember the end of season one, and, you know, it was uh, it was late and I think it was like four in the morning and it was November. So it was quite cold, not to complain because, you know, we're so grateful and privileged to be actors acting in a show. But like, you know, everyone had worked really hard and we got to the end of the shoot and, and Ted, Ted, Jason, Jason sort of like knelt down in the middle of like the pitch and was quite teary, I think, because, you know, it'd been you know tough for him and he'd been away from his family and. And all the kind of players and actors sort of surrounded him like in a huddle, like it was a pregame sort of speech kind of thing. And he just gave this really impassioned speech about how grateful he was for everyone stepping up to the mark and caring. And everyone does care, like crew, cast, everyone, you know, everyone cares so much to kind of nail the thing they're doing, whatever it is they're doing. Because, you know, at that point, we didn't know it was going to have, you know, such a wide reach. And, you know, and, and now it feels even more, we have to care even more. And we do, because... You know, we're so delighted that people have taken this show to their hearts. And and even like the other week, I remember off the back of the Keeley episode, you know, episode 11, where there's the inappropriate, uh, you know, when, you know, when Nate kisses Keeley and it's completely wrong and he oversteps the mark. And and, um, and there was quite a bit of Twitter fallout, not Twitter fallout, but like, you know, it was a big moment. And it's like, oh, Nate, I mean, you really, this is, you know, this is this is pretty serious now. And um, and obviously off the back of 12. And Nate, uh, Jason, like, texted me just before the finale. I was like, I just want to check in. I hope you're okay. I know that, you know, I know that social media is doing its thing. And, you know, this is good. This is a good thing because this is, we need people to feel this. And so he was just really sweet. And, you know, he's very, very Ted-like. So you're actually back in the United States now. Now you're in Albuquerque, New Mexico, of all places, doing some work. It's your second trip in your life to the United States. And what are you learning on your on this your first real trip? It doesn't sound like you're here yeah. very long on the first yeah. one. Yeah, so I'm here for five weeks, and um, so I've done I've done about ten days actually. So I'm just under uh, four weeks to go. Um, I yeah, I mean it, it's wonderful. I'm doing this film called Maggie Moore's. I feel very out of my depth. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. I mean, it's, it's it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. It's this kind of, you know, this film set in this desert town and I play a like a deputy sort of sheriff, I guess. And um, it, it, John Hamm is my boss and Tina Fey's in it. And, you know, all these like heroes are like kind of, and John Slattery is directing it. And it's just been mad. Like I kind of, but it, it's weird. It's, it's weird like how similar it is in, in the UK. It's like the crew have a very, you know, similar dynamic to the crews in, in, in the UK and everyone's just very friendly and supportive. So yeah, I, I feel it's good, but yeah, it's quite mad. I've got to do some driving and there's some stunts, stunts in it, like, you know, which I've obviously never done before and things. So I'm kind of like, Oh, this is, this is quite, this is quite fun. So it's very different. Um, uh, 
Oh, I was about to give a spoiler away, so I won't say that about what the stunt is on Monday. But like, I'm doing a stunt thing on Monday, and I'm like, I've been shown videos of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll have a go at that. <laughs> so we'll see what that that turns out like. But yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I should mention the names: uh, Maggie Moore's. It's got uh, as a director John Slattery of Mad Men fame, also John Hamm of Mad Men fame, in, in addition to Tina Fey. Um, and when I think of Mad Men, I think of tremendous acting but also it's just some wonderfully hilarious lines from like john slattery had yeah. before you met them had you watched mad men at all to get a oh, sense yeah. of oh, yeah them? I'd, I'd absolutely loved it yeah yeah i'm big fans of all you know all, all three of those um yeah and um i kind of and this is john's like third or fourth, fourth film that he's directed i think so he's like and he loves it. Like you can see he's just so, so in his element and he loves it. And I think he's had this script a while and then like COVID got in the way. So it's, I think it's been a long time kind of coming. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. It's really exciting and very different to anything I've done before. So yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's that, it's sort of not, not, not similar to Ted in any way, but it's, it's got that, it walks that fine line in the way that I think Ted does in that it somehow manages to be a thriller in some respects, because it's, you know, it's about the, murder of two women i mean it's loosely based on a true story the, the murder of two women with the same name and it was unsolved and um yeah and but that they managed to kind of kind of put kind of comedy in sort of the just the trauma of it i guess in the way that i think a lot of police uh you know people who work in uh you know ambulance and you know medicine you know hospitals and so on have to you know the way they deal with tra trauma day in day out they have to kind of almost detach themselves from it and it, you know they almost become quite um sort of cynical about some of it and you know the way they speak they're very kind of matter of fact when when actually to to you or i it would be like gee i mean that's that's too much i can't kind of cope with it. you know so so they find find comedy in those kind of sort of dark places and so it's really it's really interesting um and it walks a really fun, fine line. And it's really odd. It's a lot of character actors as well, actually, like very odd looking people, odd sounding people. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's like and, and it's sort of meant to be this sort of just small desert town in the middle of nowhere where not much really happens. And so, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah. What kind of an accent does your character have? Well, we played around with a few like we, we thought. At first, we were doing like, you know, as, as if I was local from, you know, set in Arizona, actually, um, rather than New Mexico. But so I was doing an American accent. And then we thought, would it be, is it more fun to be had if I'm playing like a slightly more like British guy who's kind of come over? And then what if like we're sort of somewhere in between? So we kind of we, we play around with and, you know, we, we were able to improvise a little bit as well. So occasionally I kind of sort of slip into American almost to kind of mock John Hamm's character and he does the same for me as a British guy so it's quite there's, there's some fun to be had with that and the writers on set as well which is great so we kind of we've been playing with some some of that so yeah it'll be I, I can't wait to see it actually and so yeah would you mind if I asked what your American accent sounds like I was just gonna ask the same question like I I, I still don't know how American accents are done so regularly by British actors <laughs> okay so this so I have a, a, this amazing accent uh, coach guy called Rick Lipson who does amazing like he works with like Tom Holland and like he's just like he's he's a great guy and he actually lives quite near to where I live and he has these 41 American sentences that you have to read before you do any American accent. And so here's, okay. Mr. Miller remembered he had climbed many mountains. Dan and Ned ran from the barn into the open. The singing in the evening showed nothing wrong. 
part way up the slope there's a popular camping spot so he just it's he, he kind of it's it's like this software it's like this software that tricks your brain into becoming an american but it's all wow. kind of written phonetically and stuff but yeah so yeah it's sort of like the rain in spain falls mainly on the plane <laughs> exactly they're all like wow. with, yeah yeah Nick Muhammad plays Nate Shelley, ambitious soccer coach, and got an Emmy Award nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series on Ted Lasso. Season three starts when? Well, well I, I don't know, actually. Well, we start filming in January, I think. So um, they're okay. writing it now. Um, yeah, filming start at the start of next year. Like, take six months to film. But then it goes out pretty, you know, it's sort of staggered delivery. So as soon as we kind of finish filming, it'll probably, I, I suspect it'll come out next summer, like, it'll, like it did this year. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start segment three. We've got domestic soccer headlines. That's how we're going to be doing it from here on. First, Steve Baldwin has agreed to sell the Washington Spirit, his NWSL team that has been in the news for a lot of wrong reasons uh, recently. We obviously had Molly Hensley Clancy on the show not too long ago from the Washington Post uh, to talk about her reporting of everything that's been going on inside the Washington Spirit. A source told ESPN that Baldwin communicated via email to the other investors that he hoped to sell the team by the end of the year, though he did not name a specific individual or group that would be willing to buy the team. Obviously, Michelle Kang is the uh, investor that wants to buy the team, has been trying to, and, and so there's a, a so much conflict uh, between her and, and Baldwin in recent weeks. Uh, the Washington Post reported that in Baldwin's email, he said, quote, I have heard the calls for change. I understand that many of our fans, players, and investors feel that the club requires new leadership, direction, and energy. And I agree. Okay, what's going to happen here? Yeah, I mean, and, and there's been some more detail. I think Meg Linhan reported that you know, that he's basically brought in people from other companies that he owns even during this process as part of the effort to clean it up. He just seems like a bad owner. And like, yeah. in some ways, he took the Washington Spirit, who I thought were kind of a, a team in NWSL that needed a lift. And kind of from a public perception standpoint, it seemed like he did that. But now it's clear that he cannot proceed. And you just hope that the clash that he has had with why Michelle Kang is not going to prevent... Michelle Kang from taking over as the owner because she very clearly deserves to. She's clearly been the one who's trying to lead change within that organization. Right. And really, the the takeaway from all this is you would hope that in the aftermath of all of this, that the NWSL, frankly, will survive and secondarily has ownership that represents the interests of the players that is not always trying to go against the players just because they have to negotiate for a CBA and has the interests of the women's game at mind. And I think that there are a couple, and there's some processes that it's just not the case at the moment. So you hope there's enough sound investors, there are enough quality investors in the game that can help grow it, and that can help take it a step further as being an incredibly welcoming environment for an incredibly deserving group of athletes that should have a league that's better than what they've had so far. Yeah, I do hope Michelle King ends up being the one to buy the team uh, and, and become the majority owner. She seems to have all of the the right interests in in what she said publicly the players clearly believe in her they want her to be the owner of the team the boys club ownership of women's professional soccer teams needs to end and there's the whole tie-in to magic jack more than a decade ago 
And, you know, that just cannot continue. And, and what we're seeing with the new ownership groups like the one Angel City coming in, these are the right owners. You know, the, the folks, uh, Angie and Chris Long out in Kansas City, who I had on my podcast when they came into the league, they've been terrific. They have a, uh, and, and grant I'm biased, I went to high school with Angie, but like, they have a, a training facility, a $15 million training facility that they're, they're doing all the right things. They're moving into the soccer stadium from the minor league baseball park next season. And things, you know, as bad as some things are lately in the NWSL and, and they're going to need a new commissioner and all that, there are some positive things. They just need to maximize the positive things and fix the awful stuff that we've seen in recent weeks become publicized. A couple of things I wanted to talk about, international things that maybe we didn't address in the midweek podcast. Canada beats Panama 4-1 to one up in Toronto, and Canada now two points clear of Panama. And we're starting to see some separation, I think, with Mexico, USA, and Canada and Canada's on track to qualify for its first World Cup since 1986. And I don't think we realize, perhaps as American fans, that we haven't lived the suffering of the Canadian soccer fan that struggled to even get into the final stage, into what used to be the hex and is now the, the octagonal. The struggle for them to get into this octagonal. They had to qualify through several rounds in order to get to this stage. And now, for them to be so assured, particularly when they play at home, I imagine has to be so crazy for them and it's got to be this incredible kind of eureka moment that they too are having a generation of talent coming through. And oh my God, I get to watch Alfonso Davies play in every one of these international windows for the shirt in meaningful games. And he is delivering. He is coming up with huge performances that draw the attention of Drake, that draw the attention of, of world headline makers because of that, that second goal that he scored against Panama was unbelievable. The, the yeah. dart of speed that he has to get to that ball is amazing. And so... Canada getting to a place where they are respectable, where they look like they're going to qualify, where if you kind of handicapped it right now, you'd go, yeah, Canada are going to go to the World Cup. And it kind of feels in some ways like them or like the U.S. qualifying in 1990, where, mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to host it. But first, you kind of want to get in there on merit. And it was a big deal that the U.S. qualified for 1990 because it showed, well, they're not just going to qualify for the next World Cup and they're going to get hammered. It's they're going to show up and put in a respectable performance, as they did. And so I think Canada showing in this qualifying cycle that they're ready for 26 when they're going to host some games is really cool. One of the great international goals I've ever seen was the Davies yeah. goal. Like, if you haven't seen it, I, just his ability to close space embarrass the Panamanian defender by winning the ball, prevent it from going over the line, and then embarrass another Panamanian defender before finishing with his left. It, it just, it's unreal. And, and Davies is so freaking good right now. It's like best player in CONCACAF. I don't think it's even that close at this point. And, you know, comes back and has a good game for Bayern Munich winning 5-1 at Leverkusen on Sunday as well. So Alfonso Davies is just a freaking superstar, and I, I, I can't say much more than that at this point. MLS, another busy weekend as we're in the stretch run of the regular season, and probably the, the lead being the Hudson River Derby here where I am in New York City. Red Bulls won. NY, uh, New York City. I, I, I've stopped calling them NYCFC. I now call them New York City 
Hmm. Uh, NYCFC is just too much of a mouthful. Yeah, I decided. And New York City so, is a great name for a team too. I like that. In some ways, they probably should like. Sh- well, I mean, they have to do FC, but I like New York City. Like you just call a team New York City. I think it's a great yeah. name for a team. Yeah. So City and the Red Bulls. Second straight time that the Red Bulls have beaten their intra-city rival, and now they're basically even in the standings, and it, it's kind of a collapse with City over the last month or so. Did you have any thoughts on this game and, and, and what's going on with City? Yeah, so they haven't scored a goal in more than four games. Uh, they've won one of their last nine. And all year long, if you actually, if you look at some of like the, the 538 numbers and projecting this season, they've actually at times given them a better chance to win MLS Cup than even New England, which is, and I think it's that's largely, you know, XG-based and kind of underlying stats-based. All year long, New York City have been great at creating chances. They don't give away that many. And yet... They're not clinical in the penalty area, and they kind of give away some soft goals. And so today, another kind of soft one given up to the Red Bulls, who are not the most aesthetically pleasing team, but they've gotten the job done in recent times. They're actually one of the form teams in MLS right now. And two teams at the midway point of the year, when I think the Red Bulls went a couple of months without winning, you thought, there's no way they're making the playoffs. Now the Red Bulls are level with NYCFC on points, and both of them are on the outside looking in for the playoff places. But a real surprise collapse from New York City towards a stretch run of the season. I still think they can turn around. When I look at those numbers, I still go... City are, are going to be fine, but they only have five games left to be fine. And so it's it's real gut check time for New York City. It'd be fascinating to me if neither New York team made the playoffs, which is a very real possibility at this point. And it's sort of a long-term thing with MLS teams in New York over the years. They just haven't won <laughs> that yeah. much. You know, I guess a couple supporter shields for, for the Red Bulls, but... If there's a postseason MLS without a single New York City team uh, or New York team, that would be a real issue. Uh, Other MLS news, LA Galaxy snap a nine-game winless run with a 2-1 win over the Portland Timbers. Late penalty from Sasha Kleshton to clinch it. And the Galaxy have fallen to the point where they're very close to the playoff line. Yeah, I mean, if not for really a, a lack of a playoff field underneath seven, I think the Galaxy would have been in real trouble. I thought that they were one of the most impressive teams in the league for kind of the first half of the season, but this poor stretch has has kind of begged a lot of questions, and I think it, it kind of exposed the fact that the Galaxy still had a lot of underlying issues, that Greg Vanny has done an incredible job to cover over this season, but he's also trying to bring through what he believes to be the solutions. They brought they brought in a ton of players from France because they kind of view perhaps a market inefficiency there as a place where they can go and find good players. But I think there are still some issues, particularly defensively. They have to find some new answers at, at the Galaxy. And it was going to take more than a season. It's actually kind of remarkable that they're here already given how bad it's been the last couple of seasons. But I think the Galaxy will make the playoffs, but they desperately needed this win against Portland just to find some positivity. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, for them. And and I do like this time of year in MLS because the regular season games now feel like they really mean something. And I can't always say that's the case uh, in the regular season MLS, but I love the MLS playoffs. I can't wait uh, for those single elimination games to start. It's not that far away. And there's going to be some good storylines in the coming weeks. We'll see who ends up getting in. 
And I actually think that the playoff format moving to single elimination does add a little bit more stakes because getting a top four seed is important because right. you want to have if you're going to be playing single elimination games you want to have them at home and so i do think that even the like spots 5 6 and 7 they're not satisfied with just making it they want to climb into that top 4 so they can have a home playoff game so i think there's a little bit more stakes up and down the table than just who are the teams that are making it into the playoffs uh, and then you also have new england who were fighting for a points record dropping points at home to Chicago is not the way to do that but I mean they're they're going to be coasting into the playoffs they'll be fine it's just you want to see if maybe they can pull off some MLS history here they probably needed to win that one on Saturday in order to in, in order to get towards that place all right many thanks Chris good talking to you thanks Grant thanks for listening to football with Grant Wall I'd like to thank Nick Muhammad as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time. (laughs) 